What if it rained food? What if Earth was a cube? What if we had nine lives? What if bits could fly? It's absurd. If money grew on trees, if we didn't have knees, if we walked through life slightly magnetical, it's absurd. Absurd hypotheticals. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Absurd Hypotheticals, the show where we overthink dumb questions so you don't have to. I'm your host, Marcus Lehner, and I'm joined here today by Chris Yee and Ben Storms. Say hi, guys. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Ben. Guys, our question today is one that is near and dear to my heart, and you should never have let me answer it because I went on so many tangents, but it is basically my one area of true expertise in life, and it is, what if life was a video game? You don't make video games, though. I don't make video games. So I, I design board games as a hobby, but I do play a lot of video games. And letting me get near any topics that have anything to do with game design is a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Both on your part and to our listeners, because I'm just going to... I got very excited to be able to talk about it a little bit. Well, it's just a treat for our listeners. They have an expert to listen to. Yes. A literal expert here with zero qualifications. Well, you took a, a college course on it, right? Yeah, I took a whole college class, um, intro to board game design. And you've actually designed a few board games. I am actually an award-winning board game designer. Yeah, that is None true. of them published, but I have two awards. <laughs> <laughs> so just to um, set the stage here, so we're not talking like literally a video game in that we're not in a Matrix virtual world where we're made, of, made up of pixels and things. It's more what if life acted like a video game. Yeah, it's not the premise to the, the reboot of Jumanji. Right. Yeah. So... I'm going to start because I'm too excited. Um, what if life was like a video game? And I'm going to skip right to the conclusion. It would be goddamn awesome. <laughs> what I mean by that is that at their very core, games are designed to be fun. Real life, meanwhile, is not really designed to be anything. So you kind of just, you know, you take what you can get. You take the good with the bad. So I'm going to talk a little bit about game design, kind of like what efforts are made so that the experience works and how those would impact our day-to-day -day life in this scenario. So the first thing is learning how to do things. So in order for anyone to experience a game, the first thing they have to do is learn how to actually play it. Um, and modern games have actually come a long way in this regard, basically evolving from, you know, unguided, quarter-fueled trial and error to, you know, some in-game tutorials. And then now mostly you see what I'll call sneaky tutorials, which is basically when a game sets you up in like a situation that naturally teaches you how to do a thing. For example, you'll start the game and you'll be in a, in, a, in a basic room with a gap and nothing else. And it'll, you'll have to experiment a little bit, brief, you know, briefly to figure out how to jump across it. So it kind of just puts you in a spot where you just have to make one, you know, logic leap to learn the new thing without it telling you exactly what to do. So I went, there, there's a blog called the, uh, the Gama Sutra, I think is how you pronounce it, or the Gama Sutra. Not sure. I'm going to assume it sounds like game because it's about games that published the results of, of some interesting research into what makes tutorials work or not work. And I'll let you decide which one of these sections sounds like the real-life equivalent of a tutorial, which is school. So, positive patterns. Doesn't feel like a tutorial. It doesn't disrupt the game flow. Low chance of failing. Tutorial boss, which is kind of interpreting as like a hands-on challenge, maybe not literal bosses. Preparedness, which I don't know exactly what that's referring to. Ability to skip a tutorial, freedom to experiment, and a focus on unique mechanics. Negative patterns. Things are things that people don't like. Hand-holding. Not skippable. Patronizing. Forced videos. Overload of information. Ruins game flow. Irrelevant information. 
failed to provide necessary information, constant pauses and stops, and too long. So, <laughs> I don't know about you, but it sounds like our schools are not really well designed on how to teach us things, <laughs> because it checks like eight of those ten boxes for me. <laughs> so, really my first conclusion here is, if life were like a video game, you wouldn't need school. Life would simply challenge you appropriately based on what you've learned so far and it, like the scenarios you would find yourself in would just require you to take that one extra leap to you know get to where you're going so it'd be like you don't have you don't face super difficult math problems at first they just naturally scale is that what they you would mean? naturally yeah they would naturally scale so someone you would literally be like held up at gunpoint and get get a age-appropriate math problem <laughs> <laughs> and on the flip side of learning things is also learning how not to do things. So let's talk about failure for a second. Again, games are all about being fun, but you do need to have, you know, the option, of, you do need to have the chance of failure. And sometimes you need that challenge to make success actually feel like success. But there's a few ways that games mitigate the negatives of failing. The first one, which is going to be, you know, pretty nice overall is, you know, the extra lives slash, you know, checkpoint system. Screw something up. Just try it again. It's it's basically a law in modern games that you effectively never lose progress that you've made. Even in games that are like intended to be quite difficult, if you have like platformers like you know Super Meat Boy or In the Blind Forest, where the you're, the, the expect, expectation is that you are going to have a tough time making progress, if you die, they'll respawn your character right where you were, basically instantly, and that kind of gives you the freedom to just keep trying things, and you don't have to worry about failing. Other things, mercy rules. Uh, sometimes you just can't get past a particularly tricky level or a tough boss, and when you start to fail over and over, some games, not not every game, but some modern games will give you a boost to help you out. Like, the most basic example is, it'll give you hints. Um, so you, you die a couple times, or you're not making any progress, and it's like, have you noticed that boss's giant glowing eye? Maybe that you should try shooting it with something, perhaps, maybe. Mario will just make you, like, invincible, right? Oh, the new Yeah, exactly. Mario's. There's, a, I think it was Super Mario 3D World or something, where if you died, like, four or five times, it would literally just give you an invincibility power-up, which you could take or leave. You didn't have to take it. But if you were stuck and frustrated, you could just go grab that and blow through that particular challenge, which I actually think is really cool design. I am so stubborn when games give me an option like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, salty. no, don't. Let me figure this out. I'm trying to remember what game it was. There was one game that, like, it would suggest lowering the difficulty of the of the whole game when you were dying too often. I'm like, absolutely goddamn not. There, there was one I played recently that gives you... It would, it would offer to give you, like, like, a mech suit or something. I can't remember what it was, and it's killing me now. I mean, Demon Souls actually does the opposite, where if you die, then it gets harder. Yeah, and that, there, there, you know, there are actually some examples of, I didn't write them down, but I, in the article I was reading, there were some examples of old games where, it, you know, it was a design flaw in the game that, you know, when you would die, you would lose some amount of resources, which would make it so the next time you did it, it was harder and you could get into points where you don't actually have the resources you need to complete the level anymore, but you don't have a way out of that loop. So I'm assuming that it's good game design where you will have benefits you know to catch up other than not catching up oh demon souls is pretty popular another version of, of this mercy rule is also rubber banding which i i think is kind of cool but didn't know it existed for a long time so in racing games like i think mario kart's pretty famous for it mm -hmm. if you are in last place does it actually make you faster or just give you better items i think it gives you better items i think mario kart is just better items i don't know 
some race, so, so I know some racing games, and I can't say specifically which ones, if you are, like, way behind the pack, it'll actually speed you up to give you a chance of getting back into the game. Or less direct ways, like in Mario Kart, it'll give you better items, so you'll get more powerful items that give you a better chance to get ahead. The other side of that, and I know the one I specifically remember doing this was Burnout, which is a racing game that's mostly about smashing cars into each other. That one, and this is a pretty common thing as well, if you are out ahead, it'll speed up the AI racers behind you, so they're still around for you to smash into. <laughs> which normally was annoying, but it's fine in that game, because you like to smash yeah, into cars, it's crash fine. Into them. Yeah. All right, I got, I, got, I got lots of examples of how to get fair here, so I got to make sure we make some progress here. Um, next one, constant improvement. So this one's a bit specific, but it came up a bunch when I was researching. So there's a class of games known as roguelike games, in which when, you char- when your character dies, you basically restart your game entirely from the start, back at level one, back at the hometown. And that sounds incredibly frustrating, but the reason these games work is, well, one... You make progress very quickly, like your instant tend to be played in one session all the way through if you, you know, quote-unquote beat it. But what else they also do is that there's permanent improvements each time you go through. So you'll go through this, you know, this level, you get to level 15 or whatever, and then you die. But there's some form of alternate currency or experience that will give you benefits so your next run's just a little bit easier. And so you kind of just keep going at it and improving every time you play it. So there'll be systems in place to help you overcome things that you're stuck on. Again, kind of like a, it's kind of like a mercy rule, uh, just a little bit different. Um, but when you really look at it, as far as how it impacts our life, there's a couple more that aren't so much design specific, but would apply to our world. For example, in games, more often than not, failure is not an option at all. Like if you are in a scenario, the building's on fire, you have exactly one minute to escape. Well, there's really not a script for if you don't make it out of the building on fire. You know, if you don't make it out in that minute, it'll just start you back out and give you another minute. So you just keep trying until you're out of that burning building. So there's no scenario where you burn to death and that's it. So based on the the narrative that the game is building, you literally cannot fail in that particular sense. So who decides what is supposed to happen in real life? Like, what is the success? Well, you know, whatever your whatever your good, happy narrative is. I'm not exactly sure. I didn't go into the implications of exactly what it would be like. If you're you and your you know coworker are both going for the same promotion, like whose life story, who who gets all the extra tries to get it, I don't know. But for like I can imagine it coming up, you know, in in a lot of scenarios. And then the two here, one one of them is failure is generally not remembered in a game. So games don't care about how many times you fail. In real life, you know, you screw up the big Johnson file, or you know, post the wrong pictures of you partying on Facebook, or you know, uh, get arrested for something. It's, it can haunt you for a while. That It can be, you know, life-changing in a negative sense. But games just really don't work that way. They don't really tend to focus on the things you screwed up because that's just not fun. You know, there's no point bringing up that time you fell off a ledge in level three, you know, over and over and over again. Again, there's exceptions to the rules and some games have meaningful choices and, you know, you can screw things up. But generally, no one cares how many times you mess up. And the last one here, even when you are failing, the way you fail is generally more fun. So there's a really interesting article I read that was by Bennett Foddy titled The 11 Flavors of Frustration. Bennett Foddy, is that, or Foddy? Foddy? The... I think it's Foddy. I think it's Foddy. <laughs> All right, so Bennett Foddy, he's the designer of the instant cult classic game, Getting Over It, where you're uh, you're a man in a pot with a stick uh, a sledgehammer, trying to actually. climb up a mountain. It's a sledgehammer, actually. It's a sledgehammer. <laughs> okay, a man in a pot with a sledgehammer trying to climb up a mountain. 
And basically, it's like this wacky control game where, you know, you're, you're jumping on all these crazy ledges. But the, the main thing about it is that this is a game where you can lose all your progress without any benefit. Like, you can go up halfway up the mountain and you make one wrong move and you're fall, you fall back, like, 20 minutes worth of progress. But he was writing up why the game is designed to make it work. So, basically, of these 11 flavors of frustration, there's certain ones that are actually enjoyable and help motivate you to keep going. And, you know, there's a whole separate set of frustrations that just, you know, make things normally frustrating where you're like, I hate this and I don't want to be part of this anymore. So I'm not going to go through that, that because I already in a list of six things. I didn't want to add a list of 11 things to my list of six things. But 11 flavors of frustration, if you want to take a look at that online, it's, pretty, it's a cool, interesting read. And it does make a lot of sense, like how he describes each of the different types of frustration like oh yeah that makes sense i thought i got pretty far in that game and then i saw a video of the whole thing and i was like nowhere close at all you don't <laughs> oh wait, ben, bennett Foddy, off the designer of quap the game where you yeah. uh control someone running by controlling each like ex- extension and contraction of their muscle individually also impossible using the letters quap yep so you know how to do things and you aren't worried failing at them anymore so what do you actually do This is actually where I think the game world would have the biggest positive impact on your life because you get a quest log and this means all the things that you need to do in life are going to be broken down into like easy to follow manageable chunks that you just go and do. So let's say, for example, I wanted to start up a nuclear power plant. Don't know why, but I want to. Something I have absolutely no idea how to do. But if I had a quest log, it'd be like, turn the mode switch key to start up. Pull the control rods, you know, zero out of five. Heat up the reactor. Pull more control rods. Bring the power to 25%. Take a full core flux map and then increase the power to 100%. Which is actually how you start up a nuclear reactor, but I wouldn't know that. <laughs> I assume you looked at a pen of time. <laughs> <laughs> I was happy that, that someone, on a, someone on a blog post did give a step-by-step instructions on how to start up a nuclear reactor. That sounded right because I like just recently watched Chernobyl. <laughs> those, those words sounded right. <laughs> So, and not only will I have this list of things of what I need to do, the different parts of it will be, like, handily highlighted or glowing, so I can't even miss them. There's actually a whole discussion, and this is why you shouldn't let me near these things, there's a whole other discussion to be had about how game levels, like, draw your attention subtly but surely to the important things. Like, if you look at it from, like, the d- developer point of view, like, with, a, with like, a different camera angle, and you look at how, like, brightly lit some things that you feel clever for seeing are, you're like, oh... Like, the reason I found this thing in this dark room is because it's glowing brightly. (laughs) And it's like, it tricks your brain into focusing on all the right things. But I'm not going to go into that here. So, you have a list of things to do. It's easy to go do them. And not only are all those things that you're doing easier, you're basically also guaranteed to be rewarded for your efforts. Like, none of this working 10 extra hours and your boss passing you over for your promotion. Like, you finish a quest, you get direct and impactful rewards. Like, all day, every day. Just filling out quests. And kind of in the same vein, you'd also get access to, like, a mini-map with quest markers, which helps you go find things, uh, which is cool and helpful, but is also just Google Maps. So we have that one already. We don't have to worry too much about that. So really, things are going to be easy to learn, don't worry about failing them, easy to do, and you'll get real rewards with them. Too bad life isn't a video game. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah, and I kind of just have, a, I kind of threw a list together of just, like, I just have it labeled other stuff of other ways video games would kind of improve your life 
one of them being like stat points, like a role playing game system. Like, you know, you do some push ups, you gain, you know, you gain strength, which is how real life works. If you do push ups, you do get stronger. That stats work <laughs> in real life. But you lose those stats if you stop. But yeah, that's the thing. Stats don't really go down in a video game. So once you build up, you know, that muscle, you don't have to worry about maintaining it as much because typically your stats don't go back down. Like healing, medicine is much simpler when, you know, a red potion is going to cure basically all your ales. Item storage, you get to have a nice, you know, magical backpack or magical butthole, whatever game, you know, however you, however you think your video game characters <laughs> stores their items. You might get some nice status checks, like your game will tell you if you're actually hungry or if you're just bored. Fast travel is just, I just wrote it, it's a whole other topic in and of itself, how fast travel would impact things. You'd have also just infinite energy to just run and jog all day, like never generally, video games don't often, video game characters don't often get like tired. And then... The last one I have written here, because I just thought it'd be kind of funny, is if you had dialogue choices for when you talk to people. And I don't know if it'd be good or bad, because for me, I like the idea that I don't have to think of exactly what to say. And if I say something wrong, I could just be like, oh man, I just had shit dialogue choices, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but it could also put you in a spot where none of the dialogue choices are good. So good, bad, question mark? Not sure. You have the... The good one where you're the good guy, you have the evil one where you become the bad guy, and you have the romancing one where you can romance the person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's what I got. I, I just think it's going to be awesome. You think overall a positive change? Yeah. Cool. Chris, what did you think? So I am not an expert at game design. I didn't go, I didn't do like a deep dive into game design like you did. Instead, I decided to choose just like a genre of video game to focus on. And the genre I picked was the platformer. So if you don't know what a platformer is, it's basically just a video game that focuses on jumping from platform to platform, hence the name platformer. And like a prime example of this is Mario. Everyone, pretty much everyone knows what Mario is. So life is like Mario kind of, but also other platformers too. So to begin, I want to look at like sort of a real life or like what in real life is already similar to platforming. And the thing that came to mind was Ninja Warrior. I specifically looked at American Ninja Warrior because I was looking for stats and I couldn't find stats on the original Ninja Warrior um, in Japan. But I found stats on the first 10 seasons of Ninja Warrior, American Ninja Warrior. I think season 10 was in 2019 uh, and there are 12 seasons total. I couldn't find stats on the on the last two seasons, but I found the first 10. And about every season, like 100 people around there compete on the show. And in season 10, 30 people cleared stage one, which so 30% cleared stage one. And then two people cleared stage two, so 2%. And then no one uh, completed stage three in season 10. I looked at the, the shows like in the show's entirety from seasons one through 10, only two people have completed stage three. And that th those two happened in the same season as season seven. Um, Jeff Britton and Isaac uh caldiero they're the only ones to ever complete it and that's out of in in the first 10 seasons about 730 people have, have competed so out of those 732 people completed that's 0.27 percent have completed stage three you think they make it a little easier you want someone to complete your dang thing right <laughs> you are they've actually been making it harder i think yeah it's like the qualifying rounds the percentages have been going down I guess like it's it's I guess it is a tough balance because once like two people make it, it's no longer interesting when a third does. It's not a special thing. 
I think like the original Japanese one, like in the early seasons, people were completing it. So they had to keep on making it harder and harder and it became more rare to, to beat. But yeah, those those two people that completed it or that that point two seven percent pass rate is just for the televised rounds. There's also the qualifying rounds. So there's city qualifiers and there's city finals. So that just means even more people are competing, which means that the, the pass rate is even lower than 0.27%. But this is this is a show that's like, it's for like very fit people. And there is some jumping, but it's mostly focused on upper body strength, which isn't really relevant to us. Like platformers, you don't really need upper body strength. Yeah, it's not really Mario's forte. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't do pull-ups. Does he use his arms at all? <laughs> He'll, he'll grab ledges, and he yeah, has a hammer so. oftentimes. Which... I guess he breaks the blocks with his hand, which I didn't realize until recently. Oh, it's not him just hitting it with his head? I don't think it's his head. I think it's supposed to be his arm, because he puts his arm up. Ah, that <laughs> makes a bit more sense, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but I wanted to find like a show that focuses more on jumping. So I looked at other similar shows to American Ninja Warrior. I found a couple of shows that I actually used to watch. So I, I used to watch Unbeatable Benzuke which is a Japanese game show, and Wipeout, I watched a little bit of that, not too much, but I did watch some. Um, I couldn't find statistics on those, so I couldn't really focus on those two. But then I did find Takeshi's Castle, um, which is another uh, Japanese game show, aired from 1986 to 1990. And in the U.S., it aired as MXC, short for Most Extreme Elimination Challenge, aired on Spike TV. Great show. Great Great show. show. Great show. Yes, I agree. Is, are, is, are you saying that for real or do you just like the name? No, no. I'm no. saying it for real. That show was, was incredible. A, it was a great show. <laughs> if you don't know what the show is, well, so the US version, they basically like kind of ignored what the original structure was and just like dubbed over it to make it goofier. And it was actually pretty funny. Uh, but the original show, Takeshi's Castle, it's kind of like if you know what Fall Guys is, uh, it's basically Fall Guys. <laughs> so... They're like rounds of obstacle courses, and there's a whole bunch of people that start in the first round, and then each round that passes, people get eliminated. And then I think in the last round, you're like storming a castle or something, and there's like a guy in the castle. If you beat that guy, then whoever's left in that last round splits prize money. And that's what, that was like the goal of the show. Now, I don't have win percentages for Takeshi's Castle. But I do have other stats. I have injury percentages. <laughs> <laughs> so there were no reported casualties. <laughs> Good. Yeah, that we know of. But there were a lot of injuries. So there are 282 bruised shins, 312 bruised chins, uh, 112 black eyes, 276 people got winded, 9 people got knocked out, 35 people oh, got concussions. Oh, those not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting very Susian for a second. Susian? Oh. Dr. Susian. Yeah. <laughs> I'll write that book. Yeah. 312 black eyes, 405 damaged thighs. <laughs> <laughs> um, 62 people got torn muscles. There are 19 broken jaws, 41 broken ribs, and two fractured skulls. So. Shoot. Yeah. a lot. Of, some, like, minor injuries and then some pretty serious injuries as well. So, obviously, people weren't that great at doing the show <laughs> and i think my main takeaway from all these stats from american ninja warrior and takeshi's castle is that people are not good at platforming in real life 
if you, if you needed data to tell you that, I could have told you I'm no good at it. <laughs> well, even like the best of the best, like American Ninja Warrior, yeah, they're true. supposed to be fit, but the pass rate's pretty low. So if we're not good at pro- platforming, that's going to be a problem because if real life was a platformer, that means that platforming would basically be the main way of traversing the world. So there'd be no cars, there'd be no stairs. I think instead of stairs, you'd have to like jump up in- incremental platforms because it's all about jumping. And then like cars is not platforming. That's a driving game. It's not allowed. So I guess to get to work, you'd have to like run and then there'd be like gaps in the way that you have to jump and stuff. Could be moving. Could be like a moving platform puzzle, like one of the ones where you're stuck on a, a like a continuously moving platform, and there's a bunch of stuff like flying at you. They have to avoid. Yeah, that's true. It'd still be d- very difficult and dangerous. <laughs> yeah, but it's okay. You got extra lives. Yeah, <laughs> that's the stat they don't tell you. All those injuries were just one guy trying to beat it. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to see like how big are the platforms that you're gonna have to be jumping on and jumping across. And I used Mario as a reference for this. So I consider the Mario block, like in the NES Mario Brothers, like the first one, I consider the base unit to be like just one, a one by one block. I wanted to figure out how big that block was. Now, in a previous episode, it was episode 71, where we had our Nintendo fight, I actually found Mario's official height. It was based on a life-size statue of him. And that statue is five foot one. And that's officially Mario's height. He's five foot one. And in the game, a one by one block is about the same height as Mario. So I'm going to say that our base unit is five feet, rounding down to five feet, which means that our minimum height for any platform is going to be five feet. And the minimum gap is theoretically going to be five feet. I was, so a one, a one block gap is very rare in Mario. I think they do happen occasionally, but... Two blocks or more is way more common, and the first gap that you come across in World 1-1 actually is two blocks wide. So I'm going to say that gaps in the real world are mostly at least 10 feet long or wide or whatever. Can I jump 10 feet? <laughs> that was my next question. So <laughs> <laughs> these these dimensions don't seem promising for us. We're already bad at platforming, and I don't know if I can jump 5 feet high or 10 feet far. I wanted to see like what the human limits are for jumping. So I looked up world records and the world record for the highest high jump is Javier Sotomayor, probably pronouncing that wrong, but he jumped over eight feet, like just over eight feet. Chivas. Yeah, that's pretty high, but that's the high jump. So that's like the technique where you're like running up to the bar and then you like jump and you arch your back over the bar. It's not exactly what our platforming technique is going to be, so I don't know exactly how that translates to to our style of jumping. I'm just like looking at my eight foot walls and imagining someone just being like, "Oh yeah, I'll just jump up there, no problem. <laughs> Give me a sec." <laughs> yeah, some people are kind of ridiculous, but it's impressive. It's ridiculously awesome. Yeah, yeah, especially this this next person too, which I also actually found in episode seventy one, talking about Mario before. He has the highest standing jump. So like not running up to a bar, it's just standing still. He can jump five foot four. So he there's a platform that he stands next to that's five four five foot four high. And he jumps onto it and lands on his feet without using his hands on the five foot four platform, which is ridiculous. <laughs> and he's he's even the one guy walking around like jumping up on these platforms, like, why is everyone having so much trouble? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so easy. 
so he's he's the world record though so i mean i guess technically one block a one block jump high is possible i guess we can we're allowed to grab onto edges and stuff because they do them platformers so it will be possible two blocks will be pretty difficult but we can still do like a pull-up or something and pull ourselves up it'll get very tiring and then three blocks is going to be impossible now how far can people jump so I, I looked at the world record for a long jump. It was made by Mike Powell, and he jumped 29 feet and 4 inches. What? Yeah, it's very far. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't sure about this. I think it had something to do with the altitude. I think he, like, jumped at higher altitudes or something, and that, like, helped him. <laughs> um, yeah, but that means that he can just barely make three blocks if he does an edge grab. He can't land on his feet, but he can grab the edge. And uh, most people, I mean, I don't really know how far I can jump, but I think if I can grab the edge, I can probably do one block. <laughs> Not the greatest, but it may be two. I don't actually know. I, th I, th I think I think you can jump five feet pretty easy. I, th I think like the average standing jump is like four foot five or five feet. Yeah, so if I have a running start, then I can probably do 10 and maybe do 20 if I'm grabbing the edge um, for two blocks. Huh, the average standing long jump test is 7 foot 3. That's actually pretty far. That seems farther than I would have guessed, yeah. I'm not going to stand up and try to jump right now because I have downstairs neighbors. <laughs> yeah. This, I love this. The standing long jump test, also called the broad jump, is a common and easy to administer test of explosive leg power. <laughs> <laughs> what website is that on? That was topendsports.com. It's mm, some edgy pros. So maybe humans are a little better than I thought they were, but they're still going to have trouble, I think, if our base unit is five feet and the minimum gap is 10 feet. Still pretty far, and we're going to get tired probably. But I wanted to look at some platforming abilities that could maybe help us uh, traverse this platforming world. And one of them I was looking at was the wall jump. So... Mario, he can wall jump. He can like jump against a wall and then he slides on it and jumps off that wall to get height. And wall jumps are actually possible in real life. So particularly in like parkour situations. So I, I actually watched a guy do the classic like two walls next to each other and him jumping back and forth from wall to wall to get higher. He went back and forth like five times and actually got height to get to like a higher platform. So it's possible. It's basically Mario. The next ability that I, want, I looked at was the double jump, which is not possible in real life. <laughs> nope. Oh, but it'd be so cool. It would be <laughs> cool. I could jump. I could jump like eight inches off the ground like twice. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to like actually look at why, like how this, the concept of double jumping came into existence because there's nothing in real life that reflects this. So like who came up with it? And the first use of the double jump was in a, a game that came out in 1985 called Dragon Buster. I think it was also the, the first game to use a health meter. That's also like the most 1995 game name I've ever heard. <laughs> 1985. Nin sorry, 1985. Yeah, but still, Dragon Buster. And the reasons are kind of unclear as to why they decided to put the double jump in there, but a theory is that there's a mechanic in games now where like, if you jump and then right when you land, if you push jump again, then you jump a little higher the more recent marios do that and a game that came out before dragon buster called smurfs 
rescue of Gargamel's castle. <laughs> <laughs> Also use this mechanic. I think that was the first one to use that mechanic, maybe. I'm actually not sure about that one, but uh, this one did use that mechanic. And a theory is that Dragon Buster was, they intended to put this mechanic in, but because it was on an arcade cabinet and the controls were not that easy to use, they just completely removed the the timing aspect of the the double jump so that you could jump in the air um, without having to touch to touch the ground first. So that's just one theory. There are some other ones, but that one sounds like one of the most more plausible ones to me. Now, like I said, obviously double jump is impossible in real life, but th- in this hypothetical, I think that we would have this double jump because we have platforming mechanics. It's a platforming mechanic. So if we can double jump, then it basically just doubles all the heights that we can jump and doubles all the lengths that we can jump. So I think traversing our world actually won't be that difficult with the double jump people probably will still die a lot from falling <laughs> unless fall damage isn't a thing i don't actually know some some platformers have fall damage some don't i, I think mario doesn't right uh it depends on the game. Yeah, the game in the more yeah in the older ones he doesn't which is kind of what i was basing my stuff on so if no one has fall damage everyone will be fine plus you always you can always you can always get a checkpoint and restart if you die Right. I guess if you don't have fall damage and you fall into a pit, you I don't know how you get out, but <laughs> I figured it out. Anyway, that was basically all I, I did. It would be difficult, but then the double jump would help a lot. I wonder if real estate would be like based on how easy it is to platform into your building. <laughs> yeah, like be like, oh man, this place is right on Main Street, but it's got a moving platform yeah. puzzle to get up to the third floor. I don't want to deal with eight ledges every morning. Uh, and the basement's just a water level. <laughs> I was going to say skyscrapers probably couldn't be a thing, but rising platforms are a thing in platformers too. So it's basically an elevator. Oh yeah, if you got to place an elevator, that's like that's prime real estate. It's the it's like the the wall jump spike puzzle place. That's like ugh, don't know if I want to live here. Or you just keep on wall jumping up to your apartment. <laughs> okay, that actually sounds pretty awesome. Maybe sell me on it. If there's an elevator shaft, but there's no elevator in it, <laughs> you wall jump. <laughs> It's a wall jump shaft. There's no. It's not an elevator shaft. Yeah. Anyway, that was it. Ben, what did you do? So I decided to look at this in in the terms of a specific game, and and that game is the game that's most like actual life, which is The Sims. Oh boy. If you're not familiar <laughs> with The Sims, The Sims is a game where you control little people and pretty much just live a kind of American consumerist life. You know, you you get a job, you buy stuff, you you know, get a family, do whatever, that sort of stuff. You build a pool and take out the ladder. Yeah, you build a pool and take out a ladder. You fill a room full of wicker chairs in the fireplace and just let them sit there for a little while. You know, whatever whatever floats your boat. But I wanted to see in, in this, you know, the situation where in theory things would be pretty much the same, how different they'd actually be. And I've identified a couple of, of key differences. There, there are a lot, of, a lot of small ones, like in The Sims, you buy stuff instantly. You just like choose what you want and it just appears uh, you can like build stuff instantly, same way, like when you're building your house. But that's all kind of. I can't believe they make us wait two days. I know, right? That's all kind of small potatoes. Additionally, kind of small potatoes, but I wanted to bring it up because I hadn't really thought about it until I started looking into this. The money in The Sims makes no sense. So The Sims uses a fictional currency called simoleons, which, depending on what you're buying, vary wildly and what they're actually worth. People have tried to figure out like approximate exchange rates and it just doesn't really work. So like if you look at like the price of goods, it's roughly two to three dollars per simoleon. 
But if you look at the price of of real estate, it's like ten dollars per simoleon. And then like the uh the salaries for jobs don't line up at all with the cost of objects. So the, the example that always gets brought up is salaries are paid daily in the Sims. The salary for a CEO is 1,612 simoleons per day and the like mid-range fridge in the sims is about 1400 simoleons so a mid-range fridge costs what effectively is about a year of salary for a ceo which doesn't really make a whole lot of sense so if life were like the sims money would make no sense but that's also still not the really important thing what we really want to talk about here is the length of your life as a sim so The Sims obviously, you know, operates on a, an accelerated time scale. And when you look at a Sims life, it's broken down into seven stages. This is all based on The Sims 4, by the way, which is the most recent one. Uh, there are four stages to a Sims life. There is, is baby, toddler, child, teen, young adult, adult, and elder. Baby lasts up to three days. If it happens naturally, it's three days, so we'll go with that, which I said was like the first year of your life. Toddler is seven days which apparently toddlers are 12 to 36 months old. So we'll say one to three years there. Um, child is 13 days, which I'll say is like four to 12 years old. Teen is 14 days, which is, I said 13 to 18. Young adult is 24 days, 19 to 29. Adult is also 24 days. I said that was up to like when you retire, so 30 to 64. And then elder is 10 question mark days. It's kind of weird, but we'll say it's uh, 10. So what's interesting is that the distribution of your life is not really like the actual distribution of your life. So according to the CDC, the average human lifespan in the U.S. is 78.6 years as of like 2017. And if you look at that, like what I'll call like the childhood ca category, so baby slash toddler slash child, that's 12 years of your life, which is about 15% of an actual human life. But that's 23 days of a Sims life, which is about... A sim's life is roughly 100 days, so it's about 23% of your sim life. So that really terrible time when you're young and can't actually do anything lasts a lot longer relative to the rest of your life, which sucks. No wonder fridges are so expensive. I know, right? Additionally, adulthood, which is, is I said, just like the actual adult part, which I figured was like 30 to 65, I said. That's 35 years, so it's like 44.5% of your human life. It's only 24 days, which is also like the same length of time as that childhood, you know, 24%. Um, so you have much less time when you're actually a functioning adult, which seems pretty bad. Seems not great. I also was laughing a lot because the thing I was reading uh, about like different life stages, it talked about things that different like, you know, life stages could do. And I had to bring up the list of things that elders can do that younger life stages can't is retire, die of old age, become dangerously tired, die of overexertion, and walk slowly. Oh my god. Um, yeah. I like how every other one is die. I know, like <laughs> yeah. Mostly what you do is die. You stop working, you die, and you move slow. That's really all you can do, all you can do as, as an elder. Which, to be fair, I mean, let's be clear. There's other things you can do as an actual older person, but... Yeah. Where's, yeah, where's the write my memoir button? There you go. Speaking of, kind of, that 100-day that lifespan is a little flexible in The Sims. Because there are actually a few ways that you can cheat death. And this is where things are going to get a little bit complicated. 
So one of the ways you can cheat death is in The Sims, there are different skills you can you can um, build up that, you know, are either like hobbies or things like that, or just like, you know, fitness, stuff like that. One of those is writing. And if you max out your writing skill and then fulfill the best-selling author uh, aspiration, you you can become poetic, which then lets you write the book of life, which can be bound to a person and revive them when they die. You can write the book of life despite being called the book of life multiple times. And it only takes about four hours to write a book, including, I assume, the book of life. So at a certain point, if you become a great writer, which just takes writing a bunch, there's no like, you know, limit of the number of, of you know, max called writers that can be in the world. You basically become immortal as long as you write one of these books, you know. Chris, is that why you write all these books all the time? Because that's not real, you know. I'll write the pick of life. I'm going to write it. You'll see. <laughs> You'll all it's, see. It's been his goal all along. Who's laughing now? There are some other ways to extend your life, too. There's a cow plant, which is basically a Venus flytrap, but it, like, has a cow head. I don't know. It's kind of weird. But basically, it can, like, drain people's life force, and you can drink it and extend your life. It's kind of mean, but you can do it. Like your neighbors? Yeah. Yeah, whoever. Whoever's around. It can also kill people. If, if like, someone gets drained by it, and they get drained by it again soon after, they just straight up die. The Sims is kind of a mean game sometimes. Was The Sims ever supposed to be just an actual simulation? No. <laughs> like, even Sims 1? The Sims was always kind of a, like, I feel like it was kind of a satire of, like, commercialistic life and, like, capitalistic life. That was always kind of the impression I got from it. I feel like I've heard that somewhere as well. It was never supposed to be, like, an actual, you know, real life. What about, like, SimCity? I've actually never played SimCity before. Is that supposed to be... SimCity is, Sim SimCity is, is like, is, relatively... Yeah, it's not... Who knows how realistic it is, but it's, it's you know, you're doing things like maintaining infrastructure and building up zoning laws and all that. Like, SimCity is, like, a, you know, build a good city puzzle. Yeah. Right. The Sims is... Yeah, let, it, yeah, now that I think about it, it really is not about mimicking real life. It's, it's about messing around and i think they found their i wonder if it started off like halfway in between and they just very found their niche pretty quickly because i remember playing the original sims and then getting all the expansions and very quickly going down some nonsense roads um, yeah they eventually let you become like a vampire or a wizard or you know stuff like that and like like a weird like mad scientist yeah like i remember my family did die and this actually this is like the one time i tried to legitimately play the game like a little bit because I just ran out of money and they didn't have any food. And then Death came and he was like, hey, I can murder you and your game is over. Or you can become zombies. And I'm like, okay, zombies. And then my family just turned like a greenish blue purple and they didn't have to eat anymore, which was great. But they were always sad, <laughs> which was not great. <laughs> zombies are sad, apparently. Zombies are sad. That's why they're so blue. Well, they couldn't make any friends or hold any or hold a job, so they kind of just like were ostracized horribly, and it was kind of depressing. I remember. Yeah, yeah. The memoirs of a zombie. Should have gotten a cow plant. Should have gotten a cow plant. Uh, there is actually also there is one more even easier way to cheat death, uh, which is going to be the one that becomes is going to become kind of problematic. So there's a system in The Sims Four called uh, satisfaction. Where basically the idea is is either by fulfilling your aspirations, which are like sort of like long-term goals your sim will have, or by fulfilling whims, which are, you know, short-term, like, you know, cook a grilled cheese sandwich or something like that. You get these points. 
And you can use these points to get rewards. And the rewards vary in how useful they are. So there's cheap ones that are like 100 points or so that are like, if you're bored, it makes you not bored anymore. Or like makes it so you, if you need to take a shower, you don't have to take a shower anymore. Things like that. Um, those are actual examples. There's one for 200 that just makes your sim happy. Like, stuff like that. But there's also some that are a little more powerful at higher levels. Like the highest tier ones that cost like 10,000 points make it so you don't have to eat or sleep, which seems pretty good. But specifically, the one that's going to be a problem that's pretty OP just even in the game is the Potion of Youth, which costs 1,500. Which basically, if you drink it, takes you back to the first day of the current stage of life you're in. So if you're an adult and you drink it on like your 24th day of being an adult, you just get 24 day- more days of being an adult. It's not super easy to get these points. Like you have to kind of try at it in order to get, you know, that many points in order to, you know, keep doing it sustainably. Except... I found someone on Reddit who figured out a system. So one of the uh, the the whims you can get, or I don't remember if it was a whim or aspiration. Basically. I like how we've now turned to a game facts guide for the Sims. It's, it's pretty good. <laughs> I, I really hope this hasn't been patched out, by the way. If you have a large dog, if you interact with your dog multiple times throughout the day and it's very happy, you'll get a either a whim or an aspiration called Feel the Love which is just for like your dog loves you and you like sort of bask in that and it gives you 250 points. You can get that every day and you can get that for each dog you have and you can have up to seven dogs. <laughs> so at that point you get 1,750 reward points, which is more than enough to buy one of these potions every single day. Um, and then also pretty easily get all the other OP ones where you don't have to sleep or eat or shower or anything anymore. So I think what happens if life is like The Sims is pretty quickly people realize this and just get a bunch of dogs and play with their dogs all day and then don't have to eat or sleep eventually and everyone lives forever. So I guess what I'm saying is that it's a utopia. (laughs) It feels like a utopia. It would be awesome. Yeah, dogs everywhere. Yep. That or the the dog competition market gets fierce and everything is just 101 Dalmatians. Also that. There's probably not not a lot of dogs, not enough dogs in the world. I did not look up the actual number of dogs in the world. This is not a thing I have done. <laughs> you can probably get by, to be fair, with less than seven dogs as well. This actually this actually makes a lot of sense, because if you think about 101 Dalmatians, she could be a Sim character, because she doesn't appear to have, like... Does she have a job, Cruella DeVille? I'm not... I don't remember, but she has um, a lot wait, of Wait, no, she was a, wasn't she, like, a fashion designer? Wasn't that the point? She wanted, like, a dog coat? Yeah, she wears Oh, maybe. Fur. Yeah. Yeah. But... Wait, did she own... She didn't own the dogs. If you look at her house, she obviously knows the Rosebud cheat, where you can shout Rosebud into the air and get a thousand bucks. But, of course, she's getting on in years, so she has to get young. So she needs those seven dogs. (laughs) (laughs) That's why she's so hell-bent on getting all those dogs, because she knows she's going to need them to stay young forever. And you need backup dogs. You you can't just have seven. You need need backup dogs. So you need all 101 dogs. I mean, the person that owns the 101 dogs is pretty selfish. You only need seven. That's that's very true. Yeah, but who's gonna risk their immortality? This is this is like this is the end game. It's high stakes. But you don't mess around. Like ten is playing it safe. <laughs> Honestly, seven is once again far more than you need. Yeah, but playing playing it hundred and one is safer, and you can't tell me otherwise. It's not safer, and I just did. It is actually safer. <laughs> I just wanted to make that joke. Oh, uh, he told you otherwise. Anyway, I guess that's my answer. Everyone's gonna have dogs and live forever. Conclusion: Cruella Deville is a Sims character. Also that. <laughs> All right, we've we've gone long. We've talked because we we talked about video games this whole time. So let, let's jump into a Would you rather and wrap this baby up. 
right, Chris. Yes. Would you rather be stuck in an elevator or on a Ferris wheel for 24 hours? Um, I assume the Ferris wheel is not moving. Um, I guess it could be moving, but I imagine it's like the... I imagine it's like the situation where you're stuck in the on the top of it and it stopped moving. Yeah. Is it better or worse if it's moving, actually? Um, I think it's better if it's moving. Is it? I don't think so. I think it's better if it stopped, right? Well, I mean, I guess we're saying that you're stuck on it, but if it was moving, then you could possibly try to get out. Although I will say this, I will say this for it being stuck versus moving. If it's stuck, you'll feel all the motions, like all the regular structural movements of the Ferris wheel and be like, oh shit, is this thing about to break? While it's moving, you don't feel those as much because the the primary motion feeling is just around. Wait, is it like about to fall or is it it's just... No, no, no. But like <laughs> if you're, imagine you're at the top of a Ferris wheel, like they are not flimsy structures, but like pretty big lightweight wheels so when the wind blows they'll move like there will be you know motion that you'll feel in that in that cart but you don't actually f- like in this situation you don't actually fear that it's gonna fall well mentally yes but i would still be afraid it would fall <laughs> i guess it just depends on the person i'm not scared of heights so i don't think i would have that issue yeah i mean give me 24 hours not much to think about except being stuck on a ferris wheel i might start debating <laughs> if i'm gonna fall off it <laughs> Just my gut reaction is that I would choose the Ferris wheel because it's like, actually, is it open or closed? Some of them are open. Some of them are closed, right? Most of them are open. Yeah. I'm going to say mine's open. So you get like fresh air and you get a nice view. If you're in an elevator, then it's just like really claustrophobic. You have nothing to do. You're just staring at a wall and ventilation is probably very poor. Who are you with in both of these situations? Ooh. See, in the Ferris wheel, you're probably us, with someone as, you know. It's us as a podcast. It's all of us together. Okay. Okay. I was going to say, normally, if you're on a Ferris wheel, you're with someone you know, whereas if you're on an elevator, you could be with random people. No, I'll say it's us. Okay. I still choose Ferris wheel. I don't really see anything better in the elevator scenario than the Ferris wheel scenario. So I think the one thing that's better in the elevator scenario is that elevators are act- are like very safe. If you're stuck on an elevator, it's not falling. Right. I'm not really worried about that in either situation. Carnival rides, I feel like, are not particularly safe. Depends, I guess, on which Ferris wheel you're talking about. If it's like a a mobile carnival that, like, tours the city, like, the country and it's, like, not a permanent structure, then maybe it's more flimsy. But, like, if you go to a major amusement park, I, I would feel pretty safe, I think. I would say probably at least 8 to 12 of your Ferris wheel hours are going to be in an uncomfortable temperature range. That's true. It's tough to get a day where both the daytime temperature and the nighttime temperature are, you know, what you want to be in outside. Was there a time frame for how long you're stuck on these things? 24 hours. 24 hours. Mm. It's a lot easier for someone to throw you like a corn dog in a Ferris wheel than in an elevator. (laughs) Depends on how high you are. (laughs) You could, you could like... Maybe the t-shirt cannon guy can get you a hot dog. You could, dog. like, <laughs> toss it compartment to compartment around the Ferris wheel up to the top. Oh, my God. That would be amazing. I just think I'd get so bored on an elevator just looking at a wall. There's nothing to look at. Whereas, if you're in Ferris wheel, you have a view. You're theoretically in an amusement park that has, like, lights and stuff that you can look at. And then, I don't know, you could see maybe scenery past that or something. Generally, in an elevator, I would have Wi-Fi. Most buildings have Wi-Fi nowadays. Uh, 
If you're in an elevator core, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to raise a slightly uncomfortable point. You're going to have to go to the bathroom at some point if this is 24 hours. Fuck. I think I can hold it for 24 hours. 24 hours? Yeah. If I really long have to. You gotta piss in 24 if hours. If I really have to, I could, I think. I don't think depends, you could, dude. It depends on, like, if I, like, just went before that, but. And if you just ate a bunch of corn dogs. <laughs> so basically, is the, is the is the narrative on the Ferris wheel that like there's this really cool community gathering of, you know, being people like helping out you being stuck at the top and entertaining you and whatnot. And then like four hours into that, you're like, hey, guys, thanks for all your support. But I really got to take a whiz. So I'm just going to go off the side here. And uh, I mean, you could <laughs> scatter. You could you could pee in the thing. No, that's that's that seems like the worst option. I mean, it's the same. It's the same as doing it in the elevator. Yeah, it's the same situation, except that on the Ferris wheel you have the option to pee off of it if you want. Also, Ferris wheel compartments probably aren't like watertight. All right, I, I think I'm ready. So I'll, I'll start, and I'm gonna say Ferris wheel one because I think, as always, I think it makes the better story. <laughs> I always hate it when you make when you give that reasoning. <laughs> That's like the worst reasoning ever. Uh, but really, it's it's more like you have access to the outside world. Like, like you, things can happen on the Ferris wheel in those twenty four hours. You can, you know, interact with the public at large, and you know, look around, and it, it'll just be a bit more fun. And I will say, actually, being able to pee off the thing as opposed to peeing in the corner is a pretty big sell for me for the Ferris wheel. At least you have the option. I'm taking that option. Yeah. <laughs> it dissipates. It's like going to be nothing by the time it makes it to the ground. <laughs> that's a fine that's yellow mist. <laughs> a fine misting. I mean, you don't have to deal with it. The people below do, but it doesn't matter for you. Plus, there's probably one side of the Ferris wheel that's like the maintenance shed. I mean, the wind is going to take it and it's going to be a mist. And the mist is not. A, a mist of pee is not great. <laughs> look at. Yeah, it's not great, but. You know, a lot of a lot of elevators have carpet, so aren't you afraid of heights? Not really. I thought like, you said that before. I don't. I don't like flying. Generally, uh, I get I get some amount of flight anxiety, but not like crippling, and not that like f- all heights are bad for me. Okay. Well, I already i I choose Ferrisville. I think I already made it clear why, but I think it's mainly the the thing is more open. Um, there's more stuff to look at. Better ventilation. Ben, I. I would, mm, this one's tough. So, all right. I kind of want to go elevator because I think it'd be a lot more comfortable just like sleep in an elevator than on a Ferris wheel. And that'll make the time pass faster. Ooh, it's going to be tough to sleep, especially that there's three of us. Yeah. But I think overall, I'm going to still go Ferris wheel because I can sleep pretty much anywhere. (laughs) I'll make do. I mean, neither one is going to be comfortable and eventually you'll get tired enough where you, you will fall asleep. In both situations. I mean, I can sleep on a floor. I frequently sleep on floors. Yeah. I think you just accepted that statement at face value. I mean, I've slept on the floor before. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm going to I'm gonna go Ferris wheel, but I think it's, it's actually pretty close. All right. There you have it, folks. Um, if you want to be stuck on a Ferris wheel with me, Ben, and Chris for 24 hours, um, this is actually one of our stretch goals for our 35,000th patron. So they get to have a one 24-hour period with us on top of the Ferris wheel. Um, no bathroom included, so it's going to be pretty ripe. Um, but if you want to be in the running for that and have your chance at being on a Ferris wheel with us, go to www.patreon.com slash absurdhypotheticals. Click on that Become a Patron button, 
it's just a dollar, which is good value. You're, you're also going to have to pay for the, the entry park to the tickets. And if the Ferris wheels ride is extra, we're not going to cover that. How does, but, how does the situation work if we get 35,000 patrons? Is this for every 35,000? Yeah, every 35,000 patrons, we're going to do this. So all of them? We're going to spend 24 no, 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 hours like, like, with 30. We have, one day we have 34,999 patrons. And then one person clicks that oh, button and okay. they're the lucky one. That one person. And, okay. and they get to do it. <laughs> And then we go up 70, and the 70,000 gets to do it, and the 105,000 gets to do it. Mm. So if you guys could go do that to get the 35,000. Also, try to time it so it's in the summertime. I don't want, like, a, a mid-December or, like, a mid-February time on the Ferris wheel. That might be bad. Maybe if you go to one of the cool ones, like the Eye in London, I think, is, like, enclosed. That would be a good one to get stuck on. But anyway, you guys figure it out, um, and then we'll work out the... We'll pick a Ferris wheel, and we'll just take it from there. It'll be a nice, nice trip. That's... If you don't want to wait to that, if you're not the lucky 35,000, you can always join us next week where we have a lightning round. That's a bad combination for Ferris wheels. We're not going to go during a thunderstorm. It's going to be a lightning round where we answer just a whole bunch of questions, rapid fire, no prep. It'll be awesome. See you next week. Thunder sound.